Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the People's School for Marxism-Leninism Studies. Today is November 21st, 2023. Um, the class tonight, 1943 Liberation of Kiev, the 80th anniversary, as well as the life and death of General of the Liberating Army of the 1st Ukrainian Division, Nikolai Vatutin. So what we'll be learning today? We'll be learning about the life of one of the greatest Soviet generals of the Great Patriotic War, Nikolai Vatutin. Um, they also have a section on the occupation and the liberation of Kiev and the tarnishing of this history and of Vatutin's memory itself by the current Nazi regime in Kiev. All righty. Our first section will be on Nikolai Vatutin, the early life and the Great Patriotic War. And we will begin this section with a very short video, a YouTube short of who exactly was Nikolai Vatutin. Nikolai Fyodorovich Vatutin was a prominent Soviet military commander during World War II who was responsible for many Red Army operations in the Ukrainian SSR as the commander of the Southwestern Front and of the Voronezh Front during the Battle of Korsk. During the Soviet offensive to retake right bank Ukraine, Batutin led the 1st Ukrainian Front, which was responsible for the Red Army's offensives to the west and the southwest of Kiev and the eventual liberation of the city. Nikolai Vatutin. Born as Nikolai Fodorovich Vatutin on December 16, 1901, in Shepukniko village in the Valyutki Uzied Voronezh Governorate. This town was later named Vatutino, Belgorod Oblast, after him in 1968, and carries that name to this day. By the way, you know Donetsk used to be called Stalino, the early life of Vatutin. In 1909, 1913, Nikolai studied in the parochial school in the village of Shepukino, and then from 1913 to 15 in a district school of the city of Valley of Zemzo School, Vatutin graduated with a meritorious certificate. And from 1915 to 1917, he studied at a commercial school in the village of Urazovo, Valiot district in Voronezh province. It's really near Ukraine, by the way, okay? On April 25th, 1920, Batutin was about age of 18. He was called for mobilization into the ranks of the Workers and Peasants Red Army. The guy was enrolled in the 3rd Reserve Rifle Regiment stationed in Kharkov, then transferred to 113 Reserve Rifle Battalion in Lugansk, which fought with a gang of uh, Ataman Belsky and with the troops of Nestor Makhno, that famous anarchist, in uh, Lugansk and uh, Starobelsk. Next. Vatutin was able, quite educated by the standards of the rest of his colleagues. So he was sent to study at the 14 Poltava Infantry School, which Nikolai graduated from in the 1922 year. The certificate of the Red Commander was presented to him personally by the deputy chairman of the Council of People's Commissar of the Ukrainian SSR, Michael Frunze. Basically, Frunze was uh, the, the founder of the officer corps of the Red Army, you know. In September 22, August 26, Vatutin served in the 67th Regiment of the 23rd Kharkov Rifle Division. 
the regiment was stationed in Bakhmut. Remember Bakhmut? Just taken not long ago by the Russian army. Then in Lugansk and Shugiev. Next. Here is Vatutin. Held assistant chief of various divisions in the North Caucasian military district and in the Kiev special militia district in the 1930s. A deputy chief and later chief of staff of Kiev, SMD, from 37 to 40. Appointed to chief of operations of the general staff of the Red Army on July 26, 1940. Before Barbarossa, you know, Barbarossa was invasion of the Soviet Union by Hitler in June 22, 41. Assisted with retaking of parts of the Ukrainian and Belorussia following Nazi invasion of Poland. That's when um, the Red Army went forward about 200 kilometers west. Also assisted with Bessarabia operation. Bessarabia is right by Moldavia. You know, you heard about it today with what's going on. Before Barbarossa, on February 12, 1941, he was appointed at first deputy chief of general staff for the real logistics and operational issues. I know it was a lot of bibliographic information, but um, the career of Nikolai Vatutin is honestly very interesting. And despite what the Ukro-Nazis may say about him today, he was very intricately linked with Ukraine and Ukraine's history throughout its foundings. For the next section, we'll be discussing the occupation of Kiev and its liberation as well. For this section as well, we also have some videos that will be coming up from a variety of media, including The Unknown War and a Soviet-made film that was a five-part series called Liberation from the second movie featuring the breakthrough to the liberation of Kiev. And I will be doing this section. In September 19th, 1941... Nazi troops occupied Kiev as part of Operation Barbarossa. And if you had our previous class, the Nazis wasted no time in rounding up Jews, communists, Slavs, and other peoples for execution, particularly at the Babi Yar ravine right near Kiev. As well, assisting the Nazis were the Banderites Ukrainian Insurgent Army, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN, and other collaborators that had come from the West that assisted with the occupation as collaborators. As well, the OUN had been founded in Vienna in 1919, and a lot of them came from today around Lviv and those areas of western Ukraine that were under Polish control before the Nazi invasion of Poland. So, the Battle of Kirks which was a victory on August 23rd, 1943, and the last real offensive of the Nazis in the East, with that victory for the Red Army, they gained the initiative and began to push east. Um, the next thing that the Soviets did after that battle was what was commonly known as the Battle of the Dnieper. If you have any idea of geography, the Dnieper River runs basically through Ukraine, kind of around right here. And it is actually the third largest river in Europe, which I was actually surprised to find out when researching this, following both the Volga River, which runs kind of to the east over here, and the Danube, which is the big river that runs through Central Europe right there. This river is actually about three kilometers wide at its widest point, which I think is absolutely incredible. The Mississippi is not even that wide. 
at some of its wider points. Um, but the purpose of this battle was basically to push the Nazis back beyond the Dnieper River. For the Soviet high command, there was a couple options with this. Their first option was, we need to regroup after Kursk, rebuild our forces, and then push. That There was another feeling that if they did that, that would give the Germans more time to build defenses along the river and make it a bit more costly. And Stalin and the military command actually went with that second option. So on August 23rd, basically a whole bunch of divisions, noticed on the map down here, basically pushed east en masse towards the Dnieper River, resulting in about a 1,400 kilometer wide long front line, which is a little around close to a thousand miles, I believe. Um, the operations for this continued through December 23rd, 1943. And during that time, Kiev was liberated on the anniversary of the Great October Revolution. So on about October 24th, tank and artillery groups had secretly transferred from a bridgehead called the Lietstevsky to another bridgehead without the Germans knowing. There is some discussion that they may have planted false intelligence on a corpse to fool them. On November 5th, a diversion was done on the northern bridgehead that the troops had moved from, and the main force, which was now on the new bridgehead in the south, attacked on November 6th. And on November 6th itself, the capital was liberated by Soviet troops commanded by the 1st Ukrainian Front and commanded by Nikolai Vatutin. The next slide is actually from the Liberation Movie Number 2 breakthrough. This shows the liberation of Kiev and the Tehran conference. Um, the video itself is actually an hour and a half, but we'll be watching the 20 minute part of it that concerns the battle for the liberation of Kiev and the Tehran conference. Another note is these movies were made by the Soviets and all the actors they got for this are very lifelike to their actual counterparts to where at some points I even wondered like, did they actually have this person in here? But anyway, here we go. Таким образом, товарищ Сталин замысел врага превратить Днепр в неприступный рубеж сорван. На правом берегу Днепра уже создано более 20 плацдармов. Битвы за Днепр. Борьба за Киев. По своему военно-политическому значению занимает особое место. Что предлагает Генштаб? Сталин, вы знаете, что ударная группировка Ватутина уже дважды пыталась прорваться с юга. Однако немецкая оборона оказалась тут слишком прочной. Здесь трудно рассчитывать на успех. В то же время 38-я армия, нанося отвлекающие удары, сумела укрепить и расширить плацдарм севернее Киева. Генштаб считает, что при соответствующем усилении 38-й армии можно рассчитывать на успех с этого плацдарма. Когда можно начать эту операцию? Не раньше 20 ноября, товарищ Сталин. Киев надо взять не позже 6 ноября, годовщине Великой Октябрьской революции. Приказано взять Киев 6 ноября ударом с севера. Вам это понятно, генерал Маскаренко? Понятно, товарищ командующий. Что понятно? 
вы будете брать Киев. Принимайте командование 38-й армии и подготовьте приказ о наступлении. Слушаюсь. Генерал Рыбалка, сегодня ночью начнете переброску танковой армии с Буклинского плацдарма на левый берег Днепра. Ваша армия должна совершить скрытый марш вдоль линии фронта и снова переправиться через Днепр в районе села Лютиш. Товарищ командующий, переправить незаметно такое количество танков под носом у фрицев очень сложно. А чтобы фрицы поверили, что вы никуда не уходите, начальник штаба подготовил ложный приказ о том, что наши войска переходят к обороне. Только вам, Павел Семенович, надо подумать о том, как сделать, чтобы вот этот приказ оказался у немцев. Совершенно секретно. Совершенно. Будет у немцев. Оставьте здесь, переоденьте капитаном и вложите в планшет вот это. Слушаюсь. Пообедали. Сейчас полезут. Очень хорошо. Придется отступить. Я вас не понял, товарищ командующий. Приказывает отступить во вторую траншею. Командир полка знает? Я знаю. Спасибо тебе, солдат Петров. Ну, а теперь можно и переправляться. Согласно приказам. 38-я армия должна прорвать оборону противника в первый же день наступления. Фронт наступления нашей армии установлен 12,5 километров. Плотность артиллерийских стволов 150 орудий и минометов на 1 километр. Чтобы наверняка прорвать оборону немцев, я предлагаю сократить фронт наступления армии на 6 километров. Увеличив тем самым плотность артиллерийских стволов до 300 орудий на 1 километр фронта. 6 километров фронта наступления армии? Да вас немцы прошьют огнем с флангов. Ну, товарищ маршал, 300 орудий на 1 километр фронта. Мы подавим немецкий огонь на флангах. Это интересное предложение, Георгий Константинович. Товарищ маршал Советского Союза, третья танковая армия, совершив скрытый марш вдоль фронта, переправилась на Лютишский плацдарм. Молодцы. 
По сведениям нашей разведки, противник пока еще не обнаружил ваш маневр. Как думаете атаковать? Есть одна задумка, товарищ маршал. Мы хотим провести, так сказать, психическую танковую атаку. Ночью, с зажженными фарами. Ну и вот с этим, Федя, давай. Почему они залегли? Стрельцова! Есть Стрельцов! Майор Стрельцов, вы понимаете, что ваше промедление может все испортить? И все пощуждать! Поднимайте людей! Что? А, черт! Дай автомат! Автомат! Несло. Что это у тебя, Кирилл Семенович? Как где вы стали в атаку ходить? 41-го стопнули? Ну, не выдержал, видать. Ох, и на какой его черт, если жив остался. ранен. Прорвали первую линию. А? Молодец все-таки. Отчаянный Кавдив. А у меня все такие. Слышите? Рыбалка подходит.
Молодцы, ребята! Здорово! Спасибо, ребята. Спасибо. Спасибо. Спасибо, ребята. Здорово! Спасибо, Кирсанов. Спасибо, ребята. Батальон наградить весь до единого солдата. Вам нужно в медсанбат. К черту. Владимир Николаевич, посмотрите списки офицеров, представленных наград. Давайте. Я вижу, здесь не хватает несколько фамилий. Кого? Лукина, Козлова, Трошкина. Я хотел составить на них отдельный список посмертных. Нет, в этот список за взятие Киева! Ордена Красного Знамени! И впишите капитана Светаева. Если б я мог. Если б я мог. Если бы ты знал, если бы ты знал. Не надо вспоминать, я люблю тебя. Я люблю тебя. Если дела в России пойдут так дальше, то возможно, что будущей весной Второй фронт и не понадобится. Это сказал Франклин Рузвельт. Кто знает, может быть, именно поэтому президент Соединенных Штатов Америки и премьер-министр Великобритании Черчилль отправились в Тегеран для встречи с председателем Совета народных комиссаров СССР. благополучным прибытием в Тегеран, товарищ Сталин. 
Предупредили американцев? Предупредил, товарищ Сталин. Как вы летели, господин президент? Очень хорошо. Если не считать дикой болтанки над Багдадом. Господин президент, маршал Сталин приглашает вас поселиться в русской миссии. Я уже отказался от приглашения Черчилля. Думаю, что это неудобно. У русской разведки есть сведения о нацистских агентах, действующих в Тегеране. Ну и что же? Маршал Сталин опасается, что при переезде из одной миссии в другую могут произойти неприятные инциденты. Что вы об этом думаете, Гарри? Если речь идет о безопасности, едем в русскую миссию. Президент поселился в русской миссии. Вы шутите? Нет. Русские сказали, что в городе орудуют 100 нацистских агентов. А что вы о них знаете? У нас нет никаких сведений. Один-ноль в пользу дяди Джо. Я рад вас видеть. Я давно хочу встретиться с вами. Это я виноват. Вотяжка этой встречи. Не будем искать виновных, господин Сталин. Так или иначе, мы встретились. Но если бы не нацистские агенты с их угрозой покушения, я не был бы вашим гостем. Вы, кажется, не верите... В этих агентов? Если бы такая угроза и существовала, я бы не прятался от нее в русской миссии. Мне кажется, что есть более серьезные основания для моего пребывания здесь. После Курской битвы русские имеют право на особое уважение президента Соединенных Штатов. Мы рассчитывали... На вашу мудрость. И не ошиблись. Давайте лучше обсудим волнующие вас проблемы. В сущности, речь идет только об одном. Главное. О втором фронте.
Таким образом, советские войска только за этот год освободили более половину своей территории. Уничтожили 56 дивизий, свыше 13 тысяч танков, более 14 тысяч самолетов. В последнее время командование немецких войск перебросило с запада 75 дивизий и большое количество боевой техники. Несмотря на это, Красная Армия продолжает прочно держать в своих руках стратегическую инициативу. Однако, для быстрейшего разгрома фашистской Германии советским людям хотелось бы, чтобы второй фронт был бы открыт в ближайшее время. Господа, мы прилетели в Тегеран, чтобы определить точный срок открытия Второго фронта. Отныне путь к освобождению Европы должен проходить не только через Курск и Днепр, но и через Ла-Манш и Францию. Вот плоды переезда президента в русскую миссию. Десант через Ламанш это огромные потери. Война без потерь не бывает, господин Черчилль. Я предлагаю Балканы как возможный район высадки. Мы не должны забывать, что армия Тито контролирует Третью Югославию, и мы можем получить там поддержку. Все это так, но ближе к цели все-таки через Францию. Пусть это обсудят начальники штабов. Почему? Разве мы не можем решать сами? Давайте решать сами. Okay. And then both Marshal Zhukov and Vatutin had given speeches in the capital of Kiev about the 
liberation. And this was taken very shortly after, I believe, on January 1946. And we will not be playing audio for this one, uh, but we will be having basically our will be narrating for this. So. Because Representative Marshal Georgi Zhukov, commander of the first Ukrainian front, General Nikolai Vatutin, and the head of the Ukrainian government, um, Khrushchev, addressed the citizens of Kiev at a rally. Georgi Zhukov. From Red Army troops, officers, generals, units of the Red Army, I give you warm greetings and cordial congratulations, comrades. With the historic rout of the German occupiers in the Kiev area and the liberation of the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Such a defeat, which the Germans suffered in the vicinity of Kiev, they never expected. Let the enemies remember and never forget that our great Soviet people have united around their leader, Comrade Stalin, united to fight like never before. We will batter the enemy until we achieve the final victory. Comrades, long live our great Soviet nation. Glory to the Supreme Commander-in-Chief, Comrade Stalin. Glory to the great, wise Stalin. Nikolai Many divisions and regiments who liberated Kiev were appropriated the glorious name of Kievan by the Supreme Commander-in-Chief, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Comrade Stalin. Glory to the great liberators of Kiev, Kievan regiments and divisions. Comrades, allow me, as front commander, to assure you that glorious Kievan divisions and regiments will worthily carry this honorable name forward to the West until the enemy is completely defeated. And we'll now break for a discussion. So again, if you have any questions, comments, please use the raise hand function and we will get to you one by one. Um, so I do have a quick comment. It was very brief, but did you notice a very peculiar future leader of the USSR that was there in the in the actions when they showed up there? Um, I know there's been talk of, well, Khrushchev had nothing to do with the Great Patriotic War, but uh, we actually found out that uh, surprisingly he did have some things going on with it. At the beginning, they mentioned, Comrade Stalin mentioned, oh, no, you have to take this on November 6th. Was that done to make it during the the Great October Revolution? And that was basically the only reason, because he was talking about political significance. I'm guessing that was it, just to kind of give people more morality. But second, uh, I guess we can comment on the relationship, almost like friendship, it seemed like, of Comrade Stalin the general's uh, secretary and um, the president of the United States, FDR. Uh, was that like a pretty strong relationship? Was that really the first time they met? And, you know, did they build like a more French, like more of a friendship after that? It was the first time that Stalin met FDR in Tehran in November, at the end of November, 1943. 
Churchill had met Stalin twice before, but FDR, it was the first time. And the next time would be Yalta in February 1945. And shortly after that, FDR would die. So they, FDR and Stalin met twice. But after his death, FDR's wife, uh, widow maintained ties with the Soviet Union. So yeah, there was a friendship for sure. Not so with Churchill. Churchill had been an anti-communist ever since 1917. And uh, he, ne he never changed, you know, like you can see in that movie, he was not a, uh, in favor of the second front really, except a, a minor second front in the Balkans. And the reason for that was he wanted the British Empire to seize uh, Greece and um, possibly Yugoslavia or Albania and stuff like that. So he was not in favor, you know, but FDR was. You heard it in the conference of Tehran. And by the way, the speech we just saw of Atutin and Zhukov, it was the day after the liberation of Kiev. And it was uh, the day of the um, anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Thank you for that correction on my part, Comrade. And in fact, Comrade, there's a story where I forget where it was, but Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill were all meeting together at a conference. And I believe Stalin suggested, of, well, why don't we put 50,000 German officers to death? And Roosevelt, going along with him, was like, well, maybe we can save some of the petty officers, but the rest of them, sure. And apparently uh, Churchill stormed out the room in protest and they had to get him back and tell him they were only joking. That famous picture with Comrade Stalin, uh, FDR, and Churchill right next to each other, was that done in Tehran? Do you know which picture I'm talking about? With all, yes. All, all... yes, that was. Yes, there was one in Tehran, and then there was one in Yalta. Oh, okay. There's, of course. Okay, thank you. Yalta. There was the last time. Thank you, comrades. Great film. Um, is that all just film, or was that whole idea that that was in the film that um fdr was hiding from a hundred nazi agents that were operating in tehran was that actually based on fact or was that just purely the film it was based on fact there was rumors about nazi agent snipers that would um, try to kill the three of them but if you pay attention you know it was like stalin proposed to to fdr to stay in the russian uh, mission or, or embassy in tehran in order to kind of build a friendship, you know, between both, knowing that Churchill was opposed to the second front. Take care of two birds with one stone, then. That's right, comrade, you got it. Uh, yeah, to comrade question, I was just gonna offer the Roosevelt and Stalin book by Susan Butler. Yes, she's an anti-communist, but it's really easy to see through the propaganda at this level. But it gives a pretty good detailed account of kind of like some funny occurrences and sort of the camaraderie between Stalin and FDR. Thank you, comrade. Yep, I also want to comment about uh, the uh, Stalin and uh, Roosevelt uh, friendliness and how Churchill is generally just an uh, anti-communist altogether in history. Uh, throughout the entire war, from uh, the entrance of Barbarossa and the outreach from uh, Stalin to uh, the Allies in the West about opening a second front, from reading throughout the history of uh, the movement and all the battle plans, it was very possible to open a front pretty much as soon as, uh, you know, the Battle of uh, Britain was done. And, uh, you know, they could have opened up a front all along France wherever they wished to. But 
the British Empire under Churchill would drag their feet and basically blustering and crying about how they need to secure the South oil fields and their African colonies coincidentally, and basically dragged out, opening a second front up until, you know, it was basically way late in the war. And as far as I read between diplomatic telegrams, uh, between the president and uh, President Roosevelt was very sympathetic to opening a second front Seconds. and pushing to do it as fast as he could. And, of course, Churchill, being an anti-communist boy, did say that uh, uh, the communist revolution should be strangled in its cradle as fast as he could, changed his mind during the war when it was his neck on the line, and then as soon as the dust settled, said, yes, let's go back to trying to strangle the commies. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Also, don't forget, everyone, the Munich Agreement between Britain, France to divide up uh, Czechoslovakia between Germany and other powers and give Hitler carte blanche on the southern land and their appeasement and hoping he would go to the east first. For the conference, the first one that took place in Tehran, was that shortly after? Because prior in Iran, the first Shah was a Nazi sympathizer, so I've read, and then they got his son in there, which was the last Shah, because he was more sympathetic toward the Allies. So did that the conference actually happen in Iran after the former Shah was pushed out because he was more heavily of a Nazi sympathizer? Is that true? Actually, um, after 1941, Britain and the USSR had controlled Iran together you know, for the Caspian Sea to bring deliveries to the USSR. So they were jointly controlling Iran, coordinating military stuff, you know, for the war effort. That's all. Not as in taking over the country, you know, that's all. Very interesting. Thank you. I did not know that. The death of Nikolai Vatsutin. On February 29, 1944, Vatsutin's car and an escort car in the area of the village of Miliatin in the Astrid district, ravine uh, region, came under fire. Cars were attacked not by the Nazis, but by the bandits from the Ukrainian insurgent army, Bandera supporters. Vatutin was wounded in the thigh. Vatutin was taken to Kiev, where it was recommended his leg be amputated due to gangrene. He refused, however, and died on April 15th of blood poisoning. Thank you. And very quickly, before we go back to the readings, we're going to have a quick video about uh, photos from the funeral of Nikolai Vatutin. There's no speech during this. Also, take a look of uh, who's this guy right here that's the uh, front pallbearer for the coffin of Vatutin. Here we go.
I have so a comment to make, comrade. Yeah. Uh, you saw the two people carrying the uh, pallbearers, right? Okay, so you noticed it was Khrushchev on one side, and on the next side, it was Ivan Konev, Marshal of the USSR, that would liberate Berlin and Prague, okay? And then when you saw uh, the ladies, you know, kissing dead Vatutin, one is a mother, she buried three of her children, of her sons, within two months that year. Vatutin had two brothers. Both of them died in February and in March 1944. So she buried three sons within two months. On the 17th of April, 1944, Army General Nikolai Fedorovich Vatutin was buried in the Marinsky Park in Kiev. Tragically, two brothers of Nikolai Vatutin died at the same time. In February 1944 of that year, it says that Vatutin died of injuries received at the front. And in March 1944 of that year, Semen Vatutin died at the front. A monument to Vatutin was erected in 1948 and was located in Marinsky Park in Kiev. A monument was also erected over his grave in Kiev. And those monuments this year, unfortunately, have become targets by the Ukro-Nazis. Um, so the last video we'll have for tonight is basically them taking down that. And so that's the monument to Batutin in Marusiski Park. Desecration by Ukro-Nazi Banderite Kiev regime. In post-Soviet Ukraine, Batutin immediately became an object of hatred from homegrown nationalists. Monuments and plaques to the general in many cities of Ukraine were destroyed or disfigured by vandals. So the descendants of Bandera again attacked the Soviet military leader after 75 years. 
The monument in front of a Tutin's grave was removed on February 9th, 2023. And on November 11th, 2023, the Cabinet of Ministers of Ukraine removed the status of monument from the grave of a Tutin that was still existing at the feet of the then already removed monument. And so, comrades, it's history repeating itself in many ways. The same people that welcomed Hitler and the Nazis into Ukraine in 1944 and the same people that collaborated with Hitler are the same people that are now doing this to Ukraine. And it's for so many reasons why these days the military operation is so important, as well as the defeat of these banderites as well. Um, so very quickly, we will go to our discussion and wrap up. Yeah, in that last uh, slide you had, just so people know that um, the, the crest, the what looked like a, sh- a blue shield with a yellow lion, that was the SS Galician um, logo or emblem, the same as the ones that put roses at the feet of the Nazis when they entered Lviv and uh during World War II. And it's some of the same divisions that still openly parade around. And I can't remember if it was that division or another one that the recent Nazi that was applauded by the Canadian Parliament was a part of. Yes. uh, So just a few questions. Like when they say he died of blood poisoning during one of the, during his death scene, um, he said, I assume that's from like lead, right? from the bullets um entering his blood and then the second question was um what why did he was there an actual reason why he refused to amputate his leg that's actually a very interesting story so he was shot in the thigh and from that bullet wound he actually developed gas gangrene on the leg um when he was at the military hospital in kiev the doctors recommended that you need to amputate that leg if you want to live but Batutin had his own pride, was like, I'm not going to be a legless general going around. So he refused the operation, and unfortunately that did lead to blood poisoning, which killed him. There was also some rumors that very near to his death, they tried to amputate the leg anyway, but by that point, it was too far gone to have really made such a difference. And if you remember some of the photos of the funeral possession, if you had noticed his boots, it did almost look like one of his legs was slightly shorter in than the other. So whether or not he actually had um, that amputation or not, um, it's not really known, mostly because he was cremated and then his ashes were put on the grave there later. Yeah, so I guess just uh, to answer the previous question about the lead poisoning half of it. Whenever you say blood poisoning, we mean septicemia. So it can also be you have an infection from the wound itself, and then that gets into the blood and causes adverse reactions to all your other organs and all that type of stuff. So that's what septic is. So that's what they're talking about. It might not have just been lead poisoning. Anyway, the a comment that I was going to make originally was just that it's it's kind of sad looking at that footage, Vatutin's funeral, and how many people came out to honor him. And then to watch as it's being torn down and how few people there are there to tear it down. So it takes very few bad actors to really destroy something. And it does many popular people or many people rising to build something. I want to add to this 
that in 2015, so not long after the Ukro-Nazi took power in Kiev, Vatutin's daughter requested to Putin to arrange for Vatutin's remains to be transferred back to Mother Russia. But somehow it did not happen. And from 2015 or 14 on until now, his grave has been constantly defaced and desecrated by Ukro-Nazis. So that's that's a sad episode right there. And with the more recent uh, removal of his grave as the status of a monument, they could very well pave over it and build something else over it. But I haven't heard anything beyond that little tidbit more recently. Yeah, I just wanted to you know, point out with this uh, conflict in uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine, the special military operation, you're, you're seeing a lot of Cold War propaganda resurfacing. One day, the, um, you know, the U.S. will say that it's a fascist attack by Russia. And then other times they'll um, they'll equate them to trying to bring back the Soviet Union. They're trying to bring back the horseshoe theory, which, you know, I, as World War II has shown us, is completely absurd. That's true. Liberals, what can you do? I have another um, comment to make. Go ahead, comrade. Okay. Comrade, I'm sure that you uh, are familiar with what happened in uh, 2014, you know, nine years ago, almost 10 years ago, in Ukraine, in the spring of 2014, when you had a, an uprising in a Donbass against the uh, Nazis. It began in Odessa, you know, the massacre, and then Mariupol nine days later on Victory Day, when there was like 600 people, you know, that were killed in, by the Nazis, right? And I do remember this at the time, and maybe it was CNN or something like this, you know, on, t- on TV or on the internet that I saw. And they interviewed some people in Donetsk about, you know, this, uh, this uprising, right? And this one guy said, 60 seconds. They are Bandera. We are Vatutin. I remember this, okay? So Vatutin is a symbol, just like Bandera is a symbol. I mean, Bandera killed Vatutin, you know, so this uprising is really anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, and uh, it, it has its roots 80 years ago. That's all, comrade. Thank you, comrade. Comrade, you have the floor? Firstly, I'd like to ask a question. Since that interview was done, comrade, is there actually a battalion in Donetsk that is called the Vatutin Battalion? I haven't heard, though. That's a good idea. We should tell... Uh, Texas Bentley about it. Thank you, comrade. And also another tidbit, uh, Vatutin was known as the general of the offensive during the Great Patriotic War at many times when some of the Soviet general staff were a bit hesitant or more focused on a defensive orientation. Vatutin was one of the few, along with his division, that constantly pressed forward or let's go forward for it. So he was called the general of the offensive. And he was also one of the more liked as well, because he was very famous for being level-headed, would always listen to subordinates, and amazingly actually never drank. 
as well, even during the stress of being a general in a war, which I personally think is amazing because I cannot personally imagine the stress that would be. Also, comrade, he had a nickname given to him by the Nazis, by the Nazi command. And you know what it was? The Grand Master. That's how they called him, their enemy. And I wanted to mention two things, too. You know that speech we saw of uh, Zhukov and Vatutin, right? On the anniversary of, of the Bolshevik Revolution. It took place in uh, Kiev Central Main Square, right? Which was called at the time Kalinin Square, the president of the USSR, actually. And you know that square, what it is? It's a Maiden Square now, okay? And another thing, there was this main avenue in Kiev, and the name was Vatutin Avenue. And I believe in 2017 or something like that, they changed the name to, guess who? Shukevich Avenue. Shukevich was the commander of the UPA that killed Vatutin. You believe all this? History is odd. We will end tonight with Why Does My Motherland? I'm sure everyone's familiar with this song, but it's always, to me, I think, a wonderful thing. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.